This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We're in our second week of conversations from this summer's General Assembly podcast stage. This week, we'll feature interviews with Dr. Marley Marshall, Jesse Raconez, Dr. Steve Harmon, and Dr. Curtis Freeman. We also want to keep in the loop about CBF's Church Works. CBF's Church Works Conference creates a space each February for congregational ministers of education and spiritual formation to be equipped for the journey through creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. ChurchWorks 2019 focuses on sharing the love of Christ by battling injustice, exclusion, and marginalization in our communities. Hear from unique voices who are bearing witness to Jesus Christ in their communities and creating a true sense of belonging to God and to one another. Join our colleagues February 25th through 27th, 2019 at 3rd Baptist Church in St. Louis, Missouri. Register now at cbf.net backslash churchworks. And now, on to our conversations. This podcast conversation is brought to you by the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK devotes its energy to the formation of ministers rather than the transfer of information. BSK works to cultivate the virtues, skills, habits, and pastoral imagination necessary for Christian leadership. BSK is active in supporting women in ministry and racial reconciliation. Currently, BSK offers a Master of Divinity degree with a concentration available in pastoral care and counseling. BSK offers multi-context in which to learn. Classes are offered in Georgetown, Kentucky, on the campus of Georgetown College, or on the campus of Simmons College of Kentucky in West Louisville, Kentucky. Starting next year, BSK will offer an additional concentration in rural ministry. Discover how affordable theological education can be. 80% of BSK graduates leave with no student debt. Contact BSK's Director of Admissions, Abby Sizemore, at 502 863-8301 or visit their website bsk.edu. Our guest is Jesse Raconez. He is the Executive Director of the Hispanic Baptist Convention of Texas or Convencion. Before his time with Convencion, Jesse was the lead pastor of Alliance Church in Lubbock, Texas and he also served in Hispanic conventions in numerous roles. He has a law degree from Texas Tech University, also earned a bachelor uh, degree in mathematics. He has served as the pastoral coach for Texas Baptist, as well as writing for Baptist Way Press, Focus on the Family, Buckner, Texas Baptist, EthicsDaily.com, and Lifeway Espanol. Jesse uh, practices law with the firm of Sprouse, Smith, and Raleigh, and is currently licensed to practice law 
by the State Bar of Texas. So let's, let's start right there. That's where I want to start. A law and mathematics degree doesn't seem to add up to serving in ministry. So walk me through this vocational calling to ministry, mathematics, and law. It, Andy, it was definitely a, a crazy route. Uh, I graduated high school uh, wanting to be an electrical engineer and make robots. So um, I'm about my third year into uh, electrical engineering when I sense that uh, God's calling me to go to law school. So I think there's got to be a faster way to get to law school than electrical engineering. So that changed my, my degree to mathematics and went into law school. And so that's how that first change happened. My, uh, I'm about to start my last year of law school. Somebody visits our church on a Wednesday night and says, hey, uh, I, I hear you preach. And I said, well, I you know, supply sometimes and fill in and mainly had done youth work up until that time. And he said, can you come preach on Sunday morning? And I went to this great metropolitan city of Anton, Texas. They had about 16 people on Sunday morning and 35 on high attendance Sunday. And uh, I was there for the rest of my last year of law school, uh, uh, preaching in that little church. And uh, so that was kind of the connection. I'd always been involved in church, uh, doing ministry, youth ministry, and things like that. But that was the, I think, the, the beginning uh, of a transition into full-time ministry that would come later on. Now, is it true that most lawyers, when they enter in the pulpit, are usually preaching out of the book of Leviticus? Is that? <laughs> All right, that was a terrible, terrible biblical joke. So. You know, the first, uh, uh, there was, a, there was a, a gentleman at that first church that I pastored. His son was the treasurer at a church in a much bigger city uh, called Hereford, Texas. <laughs> they had the highest per capita cattle of any county in the state of Texas, so that kind of tells you uh, the, 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 the great beginnings that I had. And uh, they didn't have a pastor there either, so I would go and supply the pulpit. And, and I remember getting my hair cut there one morning, and the, the barber's cutting my hair, and he says, uh, asked me what I did. And I said, well, I'm coming to preach at this church. And he said, well, you're not going to believe what happened at First Baptist. They, last week, they ordained one of their new deacons, and he's an attorney. How could they possibly ordain his attorney as a deacon? And so I didn't want to mention the fact that I was, I was preaching at the, at the church the following week. But... Uh, uh, it, it has been a crazy ride. We practiced law for about two and a half years and did bivocational work. And then the time came where there was no more. Uh, the church had grown and needed a full-time pastor. There wasn't any additional time to put into the partnership track. And we had three kids at home. So every time the phone rang, my blood pressure would just go up. And, you know, and it was a, a difficult time. And I knew that we had to make a decision. So uh, one day I came home and I told my wife, you know, I almost quit my job at the law firm last week and her response was why didn't you <laughs> which was not what I was expecting <laughs> yeah. and and I point to, to her response as that that was the key that triggered you know my notice at the law firm and we we went full-time within about a month yeah well my great mentor Bo Prosser who is on the other side of the wall there in a competing events grabbing people's attention um, has spoken to me as well as hundreds of ministers about uh, going where you have been prepared and called to. And certainly uh, your background um, in the legal side and certainly your calling to the vocational ministry has prepared you for such a time as this. Um, Texas is the center of the immigration conversation. Um, Texas shares uh, 1,254, I believe, is exact miles with Mexico. Mm -hmm. 
And there is a right side and there's a left side political perspective on immigration. But what do you think the church's perspective on immigration should be? Um, I like the way Sam Rodriguez puts it. He's the uh, president of the NHCLC. He, he says we're, um, we don't want to push the agenda of the donkey or the elephant. We're here to move forward with the agenda of the lamb. And uh, I think sometimes uh, people don't recognize that what they might be advocating for in the political realm, if you take it to its ultimate uh, result, it's not one that they've thought about very much. Mm. Uh, I remember hearing a, uh, a mayor uh, from somewhere in the South, he said he was an ardent supporter of, a, of their state, kind of cracking down and, and, and bringing some harsh, uh, harsh, harsher work laws and, and, and just, uh, they were gonna put a lot of pressure on immigrants. And he said, I was all in favor of that. He said, until they passed these laws and I realized that if you, if you gave an, uh, a ride to someone who was not a citizen, that you could get arrested for trafficking or doing something like that. He said, then I realized that all of these little kids that played in my grandson's soccer team, that if my daughter gave them a ride to, to their house after the soccer game, that she was at risk unknowingly, that if they picked up those kids and took them to vacation Bible school, um, just in a normal act of ministry that you would normally do, now those church members were at risk. He said, I had never thought through the consequences of these kinds of laws, how it would even affect our ability to, to minister to the community. And so I, I think it's, it's so easy for us to just um, succumb to the, the, the talking points um, and the snippets and not think those things through to their logical conclusion and realize that that might not be a result that I'm very happy with. Some biblical scholars have made the argument that Jesus was crucified as an insurrectionist, that uh, Jesus intentionally uh, broke the religious and the political laws of the day to radically show people the compassion of Christ. Um, and we seem to be living in a, in a day and time that possibly is inviting us into those types of actions. And I'm calling anyone, certainly in the way of Christ, to... Uh, violent insurrection, but you've spoken about some ways already about the way that the church, followers of Christ, can begin to come around this immigration conversation, not from an American perspective, but from the perspective of Christ. So what does that look like practically day to day for, for most followers of Jesus? Well, I think it, it varies depending on the circumstance that you're in and the circle of influence that you have. So for a Hispanic pastor, I was having this conversation two days ago, uh, introduced me to one of his church members who said, hey, um, you know, their extended family, they're dealing with the po possibility that, that three children, you know, under the age of seven are gonna have nowhere to go um, uh, because they don't know what's gonna happen to their mom. And uh, so, Obviously, their, uh, their approach is a much more hands-on, encouraging, um, trying to figure out how do, I, how do I help somebody in that dire circumstance understand how the gospel uh, can give them hope in the midst of such a dark uh, uh, situation. 
and and there might be a, another pastor out there who's uh, a church maybe far removed from the Hispanic community who's facing those pressures. And so I, I think they have a very unique opportunity to do things that the Hispanic pastor uh, can't do uh, or that might be much more effective. It's probably expected uh, from people in the community to hear from a Hispanic pastor. You know, my congregation, uh, the people I'm working with and hear those stories. Uh, but for many people, I think it needs to come from a, from a different voice, from a person who is not there, from a person who is pastoring maybe out in the suburbs or who has a, a, uh, a congregation that is, that is upper middle class and maybe on a day-to-day -day basis doesn't, doesn't see those pressures or encounter those uh, uh, you know, depressing experiences. When someone like that can advocate on behalf of of a church that's not like theirs and challenges that they as a pastor aren't facing. I think that lends some credence. Uh, it has a greater impact perhaps with their uh, representative, perhaps with the local influencers in their community, with the people on the city council or in the country club. And that voice is gonna be much more impactful than the one from you know, uh, Pastor Garcia at the Primera Mission that's on the other side of town. So I think depending on the context, uh, there's, there's, there's many differing ways to, to be that voice and that advocate in the particular way in which God has put you. And sometimes uh, a law degree opens up a door to you that the uh, theological or seminary degree doesn't. Uh, but we've all, we all have a sphere where we can have and be that influence and not neglect it when we have the opportunity to do it. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that you've met some entrenched people before in your life. Um, um, uh, I don't know what it is. that It's not as we get older, but it's certainly as we become more insecure about the world around us, we become more and more entrenched in our perspectives. So what would you say to followers of Jesus um, that have become entrenched in their perspective of keeping people out of uh, this country, keeping people uh, out of the opportunities of asylum. Um, what would you say to those folks? I would say to them to begin to um, talk to those people and listen to them and to see if what they hear from them is what they're hearing on the radio or on TV or if it reflects uh, you know, the, the, the pithy little uh, uh, Facebook post that they've just seen. Uh, I remember hearing a commentator say, my dad was a staunch uh, uh, racist. He said, except for one African-American family. And he said, when it came to that family, he just spoke very highly of them. And he said, you know, they're not like everybody else. He said, until I realized that was the only African-American family my dad knew and had a relationship with. And he said, I think if he had had a relationship with one more family, he would have thought, well, that family's not like, you know, these ideas that I have in my head. They're, they were the exception because he actually had a relationship with them and knew them. And had he pursued more of those relationships, he would have found, I think, many more exceptions, so many that it was no longer the norm. And I think for people to, to, to develop that relationship, go visit a, 
a congregation that is ministering to those people. Go and see the consequences of those broken families and relationships and see it firsthand, have the conversations, invest the time, uh, be in that place and experience it, and then see if your uh, staunch views have, haven't changed any. You know, and, and, and I think that combined with, with a, a sincere prayer, I don't know how many of us have ever prayed and said, God, would you show me if I'm wrong about this position? I, I'm, I'm, I'm so convinced that I'm right about this, uh, will you show me if I'm wrong? And I think if we prayed that prayer uh, often enough, we would discover that probably the majority of the things that I think I'm, I'm perfectly 100% spot on, I'm gonna find a little or a lot of wiggle room in. Well, the good news is the Bible really never talks about pride and arrogance, so I don't know where people will begin with that. Um, I can't remember which theologian, of course, you're standing up here trying to quote somebody who give give credit to someone, but uh, this is a, one of my favorite theologians uh, wrote that it's hard to love your neighbor when you don't know your neighbor's name. Um, and so it's so encouraging to hear uh, what I hear you saying is go out and get to know people in the community, people you don't normally see. And I would want to challenge it from the other end. I, I would want to uh, challenge and encourage those Hispanic pastors out there who don't have a relationship with the pastor from the First Baptist Church or the Calvaries or the temples that are out there. Um, those pastors and those members uh, will uh, may not consider advocating on their behalf because they're not even on the radar. Maybe they've never even been invited to come and see uh, firsthand uh, what some of the consequences of those uh, 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 those ideas that they're advocating for are. And so I, I think it requires, there's a burden there also on the Hispanic church to invite people in to partner up with them. Because if somebody's working with you side by side, they're able to see what you see and hear what you hear. They're gonna be much more likely to want to partner with you. If, and so uh, Hispanic congregations, open your doors, extend those invitations. And you might need to be the one that walks across the street or across town and knocks on the door of that pastor and Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to come and visit an outreach event. Ask them to come and pray with a family that's that's being devastated. And and the 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 impetus might need to be on the Hispanic pastor to take that first step. Hmm. Um, well, from my understanding, Convención is in the top five of Latino denominational entities. So, uh, what are you most proud about the organization that you help lead? I'm proud about our emphasis that has evolved over the last four or five years to focus on the uh, uh, young Latino leaders, next generation of leaders, uh, the Gen Zs and the millennials. Um, you know, our convention started out as the uh, Mexican Baptist Convention of Texas back in 1910. And uh, it evolved and became the Hispanic Baptist Convention to be more inclusive to the Dominicans, Argentinians, and Colombians. And, and uh, but the one common thread has always been the, the, the Spanish language, and our, our second and third generation Hispanics um, uh, are now finding a table and a space uh, within our congregations. Because what we began to see was that if the Spanish-speaking Hispanic churches didn't develop uh, English-speaking ministries and ways to connect with those English speakers, uh, there was a, a language divide there. 
but then that generation found a, a, a cultural disconnect with the English-speaking congregations in their community. So they kind of fell between the cracks. Um, you know, in, in Spanish, sometimes migrants who come after they're here for a while, they say, no soy de, ni de aquí ni de allá. I don't belong here nor there. They don't feel like they're, they've, they've fully connected here and they feel disconnected from their home country. And sometimes our second and third generation Hispanics feel that disconnect. And so I'm really excited about the input about the efforts that our convention has done. We received a $50,000 grant from the uh, uh, leadership department of Duke Divinity last year to work on a, a young Latino leadership development initiative. And, uh, and now um, uh, half of our, of our officers uh, were millennials. Um, three of our new uh, board members are millennials and young leaders. Uh, three of our five keynote speakers uh, last year were, were young leaders. And so there's, there's been a great wave of, uh, of, of, of intentional effort uh, to reach that next generation. I, I think it's important, I mentioned tonight that you know, 58% of the entire Latino population is 38 years old and younger. And I think of the, of the 1,050 churches, I ha definitely haven't visited them all, but maybe two in the state uh, represent that demographic. Mm. And uh, I was sharing with someone earlier that a the 2010 census was was examined because they wanted to see where the largest growth of the 18 and under generation in our country came from. And so over a period of 10 years, they discovered that 52% of the 18 and under generation, 50% of that growth, 52% of that growth came from Texas. Wow. So you take all the other states, combine them together, and Texas produced more uh, than half of that entire generation over a period of, of 10 years. Uh, the number that's even more striking is that not that 52% came from Texas, but that 49.3% of it came from Latinos in Texas. So I challenge our Hispanic congregations that never in our, in our history have we been more poised to not just impact uh, the future of our state, but if Texas is producing half of the next generation of our country, then I think God has put us in a very divine moment and a very divine time to impact that next generation. Well, I tell you, it's so encouraging to hear that uh, young Baptists are helping lead the way uh, through Convincion. Well, uh, to wrap up, uh, this podcast conversation is brought to you by Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Wake Forest University School of Divinity equips religious leaders to respond to the challenging needs of communities and creates opportunities for mutual learning and critical dialogue. With an intentional investment in reimagining theological education, the School of Divinity has launched the Collaborative for Public Religious Leadership and the Baptist Commons, two dynamic initiatives that community partners in their projects and conversations with the School of Divinity to engage in the work of justice, reconciliation, and compassion. To find out more, visit divinity.wfu.edu or call 336-758-3748. Jesse? Uh, thank you for your great words tonight during worship, and thank you for after worship taking the time to sit down and have a conversation with us. Been a pleasure, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. This particular CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by Ministers Ministering to Ministers Foundation. MTM serves as advocates for clergy and their families, helping them manage crisis in transition from church relationships. The centerpiece of the ministry is a healthy transition wellness retreat, which provides a relaxed atmosphere and confidential setting for healing and encouragement to ministers and their spouses during conflict and after being forced out. 
Competent and compassionate leaders guide the journey towards wholeness and health, speaking to emotions and physical, spiritual needs of the participant. The next retreat will be July the 9th through the 13th at Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Call 804-954, excuse me, let me read that again, 804-594, I don't even get, by, get the number wrong, 804-594-2556 or email mtm at mtmfoundation.org. For more information, visit mtmfoundation.org backslash wellness retreats. All right. Our guest is Dr. Steve Harmon, my favorite theology professor in my theological studies. He's the associate professor of historical theology at Gardner-Webb University Divinity School, or School of Theology. Prior to his teaching at the School of Theology, Dr. Harmon was the associate professor of Christian theology at Campbell University Divinity School, the best and most premier uh, partner school of CBF minus the School of Theology at Gardner-Webb. Uh, he was North Carolina Associate Professor of Divinity at Sanford University at Beeson's Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Harmon has served as visiting professor at Duke University Divinity School in Durham and Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina. All right, before I state the obvious, you have the best radio voice in higher education. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to read, just for the sake of the audience that's here listening and those on Facebook Live, I want you to read the opening line to the sponsorship script, and you'll see what exactly what I'm talking about, folks. That, that one right there, yeah. This CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by the Ministering to Ministers Foundation. Yeah. Imagine having the narrator like that teaching your class every single day as you try to work through process theology, um, historical criticism, all sorts of, of wonderful, extraordinary things. So, Dr. Harmon, thank you for joining the conversation. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. You have a new book out uh, called Baptist Identity and the Ecumenical Future Story, Tradition, and the Recovery of Community. Um, it's a new book with Baylor Press. Um, in the book, you argue that Baptists have not played ball well with each other and with others. I don't think you use that terminology. That's mine. Um, however, you examine that Baptists are not alone in this climate of, uh, maybe this isn't the correct term, but unecumenicism. Um, so wh what was the motivation behind this book? Well, it, it's sort of a sequel to a book I was working on and published when I was your professor at Campbell Divinity School, Towards Baptist Catholicity. The subtitle was Essays on Tradition uh, and the Baptist Vision. Well, in that book, I was not arguing that Baptists should be Catholic, uppercase C, in the sense of being Roman Catholic, but rather Catholic, lowercase c, having some sense of belonging to a church bigger than themselves, uh, belonging to the whole church, and seeing that as part of their heritage. Well, in the meantime, I've been doing a lot of work on ecumenical dialogues through the Baptist World Alliance. I've, I've been a part of our dialogue with the Anglican Communion, with the Catholic Church. We had a, a series of conversations, 2006 through 2010, about to start a second series of those I'm involved in, and, and some other kinds of ecumenical projects. Um, all of that informed a sequel to Towards Baptist Catholicity, whereas Towards Baptist Catholicity was more about 
what Baptists can receive from the church Catholic, the whole church, to, to help them be more faithful followers of Christ. This now turns that in a more genuinely reciprocal kind of ecumenical uh, connection. What can we offer to the whole church as some of the distinctive gifts of the Baptist tradition? At the same time, uh, what can we, we receive as some good gifts from our ecumenical dialogue partners? And well, I think if you write a sequel to a book that you required your students to purchase when they were in class, you should also <laughs> send them a letter to require them to purchase this second second book, read it, and take an exam on it. Um, but just don't do it with uh, the class that I took that. But I, just, <laughs> I enjoyed reading the book, but uh, I just don't feel like I could take a test right now. So, all right, wh what's your greatest hope for the book? Well, it... It's twofold. One has to do with the first part of that title, Baptist identity. Uh, cooperative Baptists are well familiar that we've had a lot of disagreement sometimes with some other Baptists about what is essential to Baptist identity. I there. can't think of a single time <laughs> in Baptist life that that's, that's ever happened. Uh, Baptists have battled over that ever since there have been Baptists. <laughs> well, what I propose in this book is that there's a bit of an ecumenical opening in a, a sense of who we are as a pilgrim community. Uh, if you think about the, the very beginnings of Baptist origins, John Smith, uh, co-founder of that first Baptist congregation in Amsterdam, was on a quest to find the true church, a, a church that is truly, fully under the rule of Christ. Uh, that was a quest that led him to locate that church not in any church that had existed before in history, not in any church that he could point to in the world in that day, not even to his own Baptist congregation. And it was a quest that led him beyond that Baptist congregation to seek men, uh, union with the Mennonite Fellowship there, which he decided, after all, was really a true church. So uh, there's something quintessentially Baptist about that seeing the, the church we want to be, the church that's fully under the rule of Christ, somewhere out there in the eschatological future, we're on a pilgrimage toward that. Well, that opens up the possibility that Baptist identity might lead us to become something we haven't been yet, <laughs> which may involve receiving some of these good gifts from other traditions without giving up the good gifts about who we are, some of these things like freedom and liberty and congregational ecclesiology and uh, church-state relationships informed by religious liberty. Um, that, that's the kind of thing I'm arguing for about Baptist identity. But then, I'm also using a paradigm that's emerged more recently in the ecumenical movement called receptive ecumenism. The idea behind that is that we, we move toward visible unity not by in engineering some kind of grand denominational merger scheme, not by finding lowest common denominator agreements and erasing all our differences, but rather by going deep within each of our traditions and, and finding there some of those gifts that make us distinctively who we are, but then identifying some of those gifts other traditions have and incorporating them into our own, mutually exchanging those gifts. Uh, as we do that over a 
a long period of time, naturally, organically, perhaps led by the Spirit. Who, who knows what forms of visible unity might emerge out of that? Hmm. So that's, that, that's the model I'm working with in this book. For those that are joining here in the Gathering Place, or for those that are following us on Facebook Live, we are speaking with Dr. Steve Harmon, who we have identified has the, the best radio voice in higher education, and certainly the best radio voice on stage right now. Um, we're, we're discussing uh, your book, Baptist Identity, uh, an ecumenical future story, tradition, and the recovery of community. Um, I know this seems like a weird question, but what would you say is missing from the book? Hmm. One thing that I think is implicitly there, but, but could be emphasized even more strongly, and if I were writing it again, I would do so. Uh, some of the, the real ecumenical divisions, ecumenical points of difference issues today involve not so much differences between denominations, but differences within them, and particularly differences that are affected by race, socioeconomic status, gender, uh, in ecumenical dialogues that have Im informed this book, all of those dialogue commissions ha have involved people from the global church of, of all ethnicities, uh, men as well as women. That's even true of our dialogue with the Catholics. But I think I would emphasize even more strongly that this ecumenical conversation needs to be informed by these voices that have sometimes been marginalized. Uh, that the Spirit is speaking to the whole church through these voices and leading us on this pilgrimage toward the church that's fully under the rule of Christ. I, I would emphasize that even more strongly. Well, I asked that question because Baylor Press, we need a volume three, uh, <laughs> third part to, uh, to this book series. Um, Dr. Harmon, thank you for... Uh, making such an indelible mark on my theological education and the way that I think theologically as a, um, as a pastor. Um, thank you for uh, the work that you are doing uh, to expand our understanding of how we work alongside each other uh, for the kingdom of God. You're welcome, and thank you for putting all that into practice in denominational work and local church ministry. Well, this podcast conversation was brought to you by Ministering to Ministers Foundation. MTM serves as advocates for clergy and their families, helping them manage crisis and transition in church relationships. The centerpiece of the Ministry of Healthy Transitions Wellness Retreat, which provides a relaxed atmosphere and confidential setting for healing and encouragement to ministers and their spouses during conflict and after being forced out. Competent and compassionate leaders guide the journey towards wholeness and healthy speaking to the emotional, physical, and spiritual needs of the participants. The next retreat is July the 9th through the 13th at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Call 804-594-2556 or email mtm at mtmfoundation.org or for more information, visit mtmfoundation.org backslash wellness. We need to pause to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Since its founding more than 20 years ago, Campbell University Divinity School has been guided by a unique six-word mission statement, Christ-centered, Bible-based, ministry-focused. That mission statement captures our distinct integration of academic rigor, spiritual formation, and practical application. It lays the foundation for an unusual strong sense of community among a very diverse student body. 
drawn from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, age groups, along with the faculty and staff. It expresses the deep, shared commitment to our faith and willingness to engage with different points of view that characterize everything we do. We do not seek simply to inform students, rather we invite them to journey into transformation, challenging them and equipping them to develop their own understanding of what it means to be Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. We invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to Visitation Day, or to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty to lead a retreat or Bible study or to wrestle with difficult issues. You can reach us online at divinity.campbell.edu. We look forward to hearing from you. All right, our guest is Dr. Curtis Freeman. Uh, Dr. Freeman is the research professor of theology and Baptist studies, as well as the director of Baptist House of Studies at Duke University Divinity School. Dr. Freeman? Hey, Andy. How you doing? I'm doing well. Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, um, I did bring a book. Just so I, yes. I brought it. So you want to hold it up? Yeah, yeah. That, well, so I have both the, uh, the, the unedited version as well as the edited version of this. Uh, and, you, and you can keep that one. This one, too? Yeah, that's okay. yours. All right, cool. So uh, Dr. Freeman has a new book out, uh, Undomesticated Dissent, Democracy and the Public Virtue of Religious Nonconformity. I'm guessing this book is about Duke's run to the national championship a couple years ago, uh, much to the chagrin of all the Carolina fans that and are in this you are a Duke fan, so yes, I need yeah, to say yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about the book. Well, the book really began a few years ago when I was in London, and I went into a cemetery that is on the north side. It's near the old city wall, and it's called Bun Hill Fields. It's a sort of shortened version of Bone Hill because it was actually a plague burial ground. And there are 120,000 nonconformists, and nonconformist means anyone not in the Church of England. So it's a Presbyterian, a Baptist, independent Congregationalist. And then there's Quakers and even some that you haven't heard of, like Muggletonians. Is that right? from Harry Potter? Well, that's what people ask, okay. but it has nothing to do with Harry All Potter. Right. So that's always the joke. But <laughs> uh, in the center of this courtyard, there are three memorials. One is to John Bunyan, who people would know that wrote the uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And then uh, w another one at the other end that is to Daniel Defoe, whose most famous book was Robinson Crusoe that people probably have read. And then one that is a, a famous poet and printer named William Blake. And so those three in the center. So the book is really about not only these three, but those three stories. But it more, it, it, it more tells the story of all these nonconformists and the struggle, uh, the descent from the established church from 1660 to 1829. It's, it's a difficult topic to write about. So, so what was the motivation behind it? Well, the motivation was being in that cemetery and seeing those, those memorials and asking the question, what story are these people trying to tell with these memorials? All these people now, there's Isaac Watts that's buried there. There, uh, um, uh, Susanna Wesley is buried there. There are lots and lots of famous people, but they chose these three. So I wanted to know why those three and what story they tell. And so it really tells not just the story of those three people or those three books, which actually Pilgrim's Progress, um, Robinson Crusoe are the two most published books ever in the English language. They've, been, they've always been in print since they were printed and there have been more prints of those books than any other books in English 
outside of the Bible, the King James Bible. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there's probably a lot of things you can say, but what would you say your greatest hope is for the book? Well, I mean, the, 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 the theme was that I, I wanted to understand what, what, was, what were these people about. And so the, 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 the theme that really runs through the book is this theme of religious descent, of like not being in an established church. Now, in America, we have no established churches, but we have a, we have a First Amendment, which really is a kind of result of the kind of witness that these people bore. Um, but in those days, you had an established church, the Church of England still to some extent is, is, is established. But these were people that were not in the established church, and that really hurt them. That meant that they couldn't attend university. It meant that they could not hold public office, and it also meant that they couldn't be a military officer. Now, what that does for you is it, uh, it, 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 it means that there's really no upward mobility, and it sort of fixates these people in a social level where they're not able to be anything other than working-class folk, which is what the establishment wants. And so this uh, class and religion sort of blended, mashed up. But what, what really happened during this time is the development and the move from a merchant, uh, from a uh, landed economy to a merchant economy. And, and it enabled people like um, Daniel Defoe, who was a merchant that started out trying to be a Presbyterian minister, ended up being a wealthy merchant, um, having all sorts of property and, and owning all sorts of businesses. But the real theme behind the book, which is the one that I think is pertinent today, is, is how this, these convictions of religious dissent and recognizing that the church is not the state. And there was another Baptist meeting I heard earlier this week, um, and I heard that they had the vice president of the United States that spoke, and I heard that they had the governor of Texas that spoke, and I heard they pledged allegiance to the American flag, and I heard they also sang God Bless America and the Spar Spangled Banner. Now, I don't think we did any of those things here at CBF, and I'm guessing there's probably a reason. And the reason is that we are descendants of these people here that knew our allegiance was to a different king and to a different kingdom, and that we were to build Jerusalem here so that it was an approximation of that kingdom that is coming that we heard about in the sermon tonight so for those who are joining us on facebook live we're having a conversation with dr curtis freeman he's the research professor of theology and baptist studies at duke divinity school um there's that phrase history doesn't repeat itself but it often often rhymes um yep. what would you say um we can learn from this moment in history that looks oh so similar to what we're seeing today right well, I, I think that one of the things we need to have, we need to recover, and I think CBF is the kind of place we can see this, where we see communities of resistance, communities that say, um, we are not simply going to have our pastors be kind of court prophets, and so when the politicians come in here and they say, this is what we want, we want the church to turn out the vote, and we want you to vote for our party, that I think what we need to learn is that as Christians, we're not beholden to any political party. In fact, if we are beholden to a politics, it's to the politics of Jesus. So the question to me really is, how can we cultivate communities of resistance that would enable us to be faithful citizens of God's kingdom that's on its way here and, and still give a witness and a resistance to those that would try to co-opt 
uh, our allegiance, uh, our authority, our um, uh, resources uh, into the service of the state. Well, for those who are interested in buying Undomesticated Descent, you can get it from Baylor Press. You can find it where books are sold. Uh, you can get copies on Amazon. It's you a can, small yeah. little book distributor, Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 won't, I won't go on my tirade about Amazon and Jeff Bezos as the beast in Revelation, but uh, <laughs> I do have a theology behind that. All right, uh, I, I have one last question. All right. Um, is Duke basketball going to be able to recover from losing all five starters in this oh, year? Oh, we've got <laughs> – you, you've looked at the list that's coming out. We've yeah, got, I'm, not, I'm not worried about yeah, it. Okay. That was kind of a humble brag. Yeah, so. all right, well – we, we don't want to put on too much. I, I am wearing a little bit of a Carolina blue tonight, so that's a kind of tip of the hat to my friends yep. in the state. This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Campbell University Divinity School, committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committing to help you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. For more information about Campbell University Divinity School, please visit divinity.campbell.edu. Well, our guest is Dr. Molly Marshall. She is the president of Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Marshall has also um, uh, taught the, uh, theology and spiritual formation, equipping seminarians in Central's four teaching locations in Kansas, Wisconsin, Tennessee, and Michigan, as well as a lot of other partnerships around the country and the world. Uh, she brings over 30 years of theological experience so she's about to take me to, to school uh, as we do this interview. Dr. Marshall, thank you for making time to do this. Thank you, Andy. And my first take you to school is we're in 11 locations. Oh, Lord. And not just four in addition uh, to Kansas City. Uh, we're in Yangon. We're in, uh, which is Myanmar. We're in Dallas. We're in Austin, Houston, Chicago, Atlanta, Seattle, L.A., Nashville, Milwaukee, Ann Arbor, and Shawnee, Kansas. Wow. So what you're saying is there's never a reason why you can't attend Central Theological exactly. Seminary? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start right there. Um, you've been in the field of theological education for three decades. What's been the most tremendous shifts you've seen over the decades? I think the shifts are we have moved from being uh, simply an academy uh, where people come uh, set up residence, study, live a fairly insular life for three or four years, we've moved from an academy to an apostolate model, meaning uh, most of our students in theological schools are already involved in ministry. They're there. Mm -hmm. And so the seminary needs to find ways to go and be with them where they are, where they're already ministering. So it's rather than come be with us and you'll get everything you need for your lifetime of ministry service here. Uh, it's more we go, we're accessible, and we enter into the stream of life with them as they're already serving. Um, we'll be speaking with Dr. Andy Wakefield this afternoon um, about the shifts he's seeing in the context of Campbell University Divinity School in North Carolina. Um, so it's hard to say for you 11 locations, uh, but specifically what shifts are happening uh, for you contextually within the Midwest? It's an amazing thing. We think of the Midwest as being pretty pretty white and pretty uh, uh, 
at least pretty Protestant, if not uh, pretty Baptist. Uh, but we are seeing uh, a great opportunity to be genuinely multicultural. Part of that is the Burma diaspora. And Central has had a long relationship with Myanmar Institute of Theology. And so we not only collaborate with a program there, but we are also finding ways to serve those who have come to our shores, uh, literally tens of thousands. Mm. Uh, we've also found a way to engage growing Korean communities, uh, people who are eager for theological education to deepen their faith, to learn how to serve through their professions or to be equipped to lead or start congregations. And so we are no longer predominantly white. We have uh, a, a predominantly, uh, a majority Asian constituency now and um, a good chunk of Euro-Americans, but only slightly more than we have of African-Americans. So we think this looks like the body of Christ. We think that we are learning more about global Christianity, which takes root in different forms in different cultural settings. And so maybe that's one of the biggest learnings is our shift toward really what the future looks like. Well, for those joining us on Facebook Live, we're speaking with Dr. Molly Marshall, president of Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, is it possible y'all add one more location? I just relocated from North Carolina to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I'm just, for some reason, don't think I'll theologically match up with the, the seminary that's uh, within the same uh, state. But one of, the, one of the good things, Andy, is that you don't have to come uh, to Shawnee or even to one of these sites in order to be one of our students. We, d we deliver the MDiv and the MA uh, fully online, so you can be one of us. Uh, but only if you do not place me on a program sponsored by a competing divinity <laughs> school in true. the future. Well, the problem is I'm, I'm actually a two-hump camel. That's what we oh call Oh, my, my. Graduated from Campbell University undergrad and then carried on into the divinity school yeah. there. So we call it two-hump camel. Only Campbell graduates. Really. It. It's really awkward for most people to hear that. So, <laughs> All right, so you've been around Baptist uh, enough the last three decades to experience um, – a lot of the hurt and the turmoil. And as painful as these periods were, and I would add continue to be, um, what can we gain from them? I think we can gain a great deal of humility when we see our foibles, when we see uh, reflected more clearly by how culture regards us as what a uh, uh, a troubling witness to the gospel of Christ we have been. When we have occupied so many of our resources simply in this internecine warfare, that is not good for anyone. And so I think we have gained uh, some humility. Uh, as a part of Cooperative Baptist, I find that not being uh, the world's 12th largest world religion or whatever Southern Baptists are with all the people, uh, we have learned how to be uh, more collaborative. We've learned that we can't do it all ourselves, that we need to come alongside a lot of other folk who are doing good work and join with them. I think that's, I think that's a critical lesson of the kind of uh, a fraying of Baptist identity. I think it's also caused us, or the fraying of the Baptist web perhaps, 
but it's caused us, I think, to re-examine what it is to be a Baptist, mm. uh, to think about liberty of conscience, to think about how we interpret text, to think about seriously the priesthood of all believers, which includes women, uh, to think about how l churches have some grand freedom and whom they will call and how they will nurture ministry within their contexts. Well, not only um, because you've, you've been around Baptists uh, for these years, but also you're in the business of training the next generation of minister. Um, what do you think it's going to look like, and what do you think it'll mean to be Baptist in the next 10 to 15 years? I think Baptists will be ever more colorful. Uh, we won't all have Rosie Scott Irish cheeks like I have <laughs> will be ever more colorful. Uh, we will be ever more given to gender equity. The women are coming. If you noticed this morning of uh, the young folk being acknowledged, uh, the 25 to watch, there were three men amidst the 16 that were on stage, three young men. The women are coming and we need to celebrate that and see the way in which it offers a different access and vision into who, who God is, who the people of God are, and how we do our work uh, together. Uh, I also think Baptists are, at least in our ecclesial tribe, have gained a great deal by being in theological education with people of other ecclesial traditions. The fact that we have a large a group of uh, DOC students in our constituents, uh, among our students, has helped us think more deeply about sacramental theology, particularly uh, Eucharistic. And so I think the kind of liturgical renewal, that uh, the attentiveness to patterns of worship that has happened in these more ecumenically formed schools, even though Baptist in heritage or in, or in name, has been a very constructive thing and will continue to be. I do have to tell you uh, this funny story. We arrived on Tuesday, and uh, we walked in, and, of course, there's another convention in town, as we all are aware, and uh, they're all wearing their lanyards. And so my, my uh, oldest daughter, uh, Madison, seven years old, says, are they with CBF? And um, we said, well, no, they're with a different group, and we're trying to be very gracious and kind about it. And she said, well, what makes them different? And it's like, okay, we're, I mean, we're going to go through Baptist history here with a seven-year-old. So our response was, well, they don't believe women can be pastors. And my daughter looks at us and says, well, that's not fair at all. And I, I, think, I think one of the things that gives me uh, courage and hope for the future is to know that CBF is one uh, Baptist entity that is going to continue um, to raise up a firm and prepare women to lead the church. But at the same time, we've got a long way to go there. Um, I sat in a state regional meeting yesterday and um, one of the things they were reporting that 1% of the churches in their state um, have a woman as the senior pastor. That's right. So, so in your opinion, wh what do we need to do to, um, to create a, a more affirming culture? Because I think most CBF churches would say, yes, we champion the cause. This was one of our founding core values. But then there's a difference between holding to that value and living into that value at, at the highest office, I guess, if you will, within a, a church polity. 
Well, you remember the Rooney rule in the NFL. Uh, you never just interview a white coach. You interview a black coach, too. I think it would be helpful if in some of our churches we did some sort of uh, a version of the Rooney Rule. We will not do a pastoral search that does not include women. Uh, we will not look at staff members uh, without having women's resumes. We will not let a uh, February go by without inviting a woman to do the Martha Stearns Marshall uh, preaching. We will pay attention uh, to this. And even though we know our churches are nurturing these very gifted young women and they think maybe they've done something with that and it's important, but until they begin to move away from the default notion that pastoral authority resides in men, then uh, they'll not make much headway. And so I know I, I have been at this a good while, but over and over I hear when I'm in a place like this uh, from people in various churches, you're the first woman I ever heard preach. I don't remember what you said, but I remember how I felt mm. uh, when I witnessed that. And I've heard that from young men, young women, uh, gray hairs, uh, young hairs, uh, the sense that when we see this happen, then our imagination begins to shift. It is possible, and we begin to view uh, even the task of preaching through a, a more encompassing lens. And so churches need to do that. That's a first step, and they can do it again and again till it does not become so exceptional, but really a part of the, of the rhythm of their liturgical year. Um, you certainly don't need my words of affirmation to know that you have made an indelible mark in so many people's lives. And you've been recognized and awarded countless times by your peers and various organizations. What would you say is your proudest moment over the years? <laughs> my proudest moment happens mid-May every year when our graduates go out the door. And so to reduce it to one would be very difficult. Uh, but to see persons as they depart, whom I always commend as our letters of recommendation, they are the ones who bear witness to what has happened in their lives. And I take great joy to see what happens in the lives of students in their three or four years as they begin to claim their rightful place and find their voice and deepen their love of God and of God's people. And so as an old school marm, uh, that is a great joy to me to see students graduate and then begin to add their gifts, their presence uh, to Christ's work in the world. So I think we need to go out there and ask uh, central alumni to uh, purchase one of those 15 to 20 million dollar Learjets because with 11 locations that's a lot of graduations to attend. We don't do them at all of those places actually. Um, I do go to Myanmar every spring 
and uh, nothing like wearing a doctoral robe in a hundred and three temperature. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. just a it's not a pretty sight yeah. to put on that horse blanket and then have an outdoor have an outdoor commencement. But uh, and then a number of them come to Central uh, a couple of months later. But people come into uh, Kansas City, Shawnee, uh, for graduation. So we don't have multiple commencements in all those places. Maybe you should. That's a good justification to get a Learjet. So. Well, certainly it is. I've been praying for one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and if my supporters would just find a way to raise this money so I wouldn't have to uh, uh, mix with a hoi polloi in the airports, uh, be like Creflo Dollar, some of these others, and have my own plane. It'd be a, just a lovely thing. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to rival the Holy Spirit in being <laughs> omnipresent, and that would help me uh, in significant ways. Well, I think the first step is let's get a modified um, robe for graduation, maybe sleeveless so that you don't have to wring it out afterwards <laughs> with all the sweat of being in Myanmar. So, uh, well, Dr. Marshall, thank you for uh, taking the time out to sit down and have a conversation. Uh, but more importantly, thank you for the profound impact you have made on so many people's lives, uh, not just within CBF, um, but around the kingdom of God. I appreciate that, Andy. Uh, you know, I have this great great reservoir of joy in that God preserved my vocation. When I was pushed out in Louisville, uh, I thought, oh my, uh, will I ever love a place like I've loved this one? Will I have the opportunity to shape uh, theologically uh, leaders for congregations? And uh, really, it, it feels like a resurrection story in that Central calls me uh, three days after I'm fired, and, and begins a conversation that has led now to being there for 23 years, and I have a great, a deep gratitude for God's grace in that. Well, this conversation with Central Baptist Theological Seminary's Dr. Molly Marshall is sponsored by Campbell University Divinity School. It's, I mean, you have to laugh at it. Uh, committed trying. to Christ-centered, Bible-based, <laughs> ministry-focused theological education, committing to helping you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. For more information about Campbell University Divinity School, please visit Divinity campbell.edu they are one of our annual sponsors so we have to have to give them a little love dr marshall thank you thank you andy this podcast is brought to you by david carell of universal creative concepts at ucc they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding david likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship 
stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 